Before I have uh, Pastor Ronnie Floyd come up, he's got a special spot in my heart. I'm going to talk to you about it. This is the book that challenged me. I'm saying, 40 days? You've got to be kidding me. You're, five years ago, I put it down. A year later, 40 days? You, there's no way. I've got kids. Uh, and just constantly gnawing at me and going through it and highlighting and just... Um, so that kind of sparked the 40-day fast I went on uh, earlier this year. Many of you know about Amazon Prime just picked it up on their, on a, as a documentary. Uh, so you can find it there as well. And just that kind of was the catalyst. Uh, and then I know I've been following Pastor Ronnie's ministry for a while. 1990s spoke uh, to 1.3 million men in D.C. at Promise Keepers there at the, at the Capitol. Uh, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention headed up the National Day of Prayer. And uh, just what a privilege uh, just to have you come out and bless us. I am so encouraged. So Pastor Ronnie Floyd from Arkansas, come on up. And... And Thank I want to double check the microphone. Let's see the testing. Hey man, I did it right. Does okay. it look okay here? Pull it down. There we go. All right, Perfect. Cool. Awesome. All right. It's all Thank yours. You. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so awesome to be here with you today. And, and what, a, what a privilege, the presence of the Lord and the Spirit of Jesus in this place. And uh, I just applaud uh, what God is doing at Westside Church. Amen? And uh, let's give Him the praise all the way. And I uh, also want to express my deep appreciation uh, to Pastor Shane for asking me to come. Uh, what a tremendous pleasure and honor. Um, I've met a lot of pastors. This dude here, he is like focused, passionate, and relentless in a pursuit for God. And uh, wow. So I'm so thankful for that. And Pastor Abram, it's great to visit with you today. And uh, look forward to our time together and to the pastor's wife and the other pastor's wife. God bless all of you and uh, your families. Um, I, I just want to just applaud as well this, this, this emphasis this week. I want to urge you to come. If only you can come one night, come one night. If you can come all the nights, come all the nights. But a church like this, prioritizing, asking God to open the heavens. Do you realize what that means? You're asking the God to tear open the heavens and reveal to us everything that is concealed from us today. And that's really what we're praying for. Amen? All that God wants, we want. Everything that He desires, we desire. That is what we want. You know, America needs this. California needs this. Your region here in L.A. County needs this. Your community immediately around you needs it. But the church needs it. As you go and your spiritual life goes, so goes the spiritual life of your church. And as your spiritual life of your church goes, so goes the spiritual life of a nation. 
I believe for a long time what I'm about to tell you, and it's a sad, sad, sad commentary. Far too many Christians and far too many churches are content with living life and doing ministry without the power of God. Why would we ever choose to live life without God's power when we have God's power accessible to us? Think about how senseless that is. How many of you enjoy having lighting in your home? Power in your home. If you don't think you need the power of God, then why don't you go home today and turn off all the power in your home? You need God's power more than that power. And a bold and audacious goal to ask the Lord to open the heavens is one that we really need to believe God for. Now, you don't know me, and I'm only getting to know you. I've gotten to know your pastor some. You say, well, he represents us. That's good. That's great. But I want to just tell you real quickly that I'm not a guy out here that doubts the power of God. And I'm certainly not a man that doubts this book of God. There's no greater book than this book. No greater book. And it's not... The book of the year, it is the book of the ages. It always has been true, is true, and will be true in the future. But I want you to know today that I believe God can do anything. Do you believe that? Anywhere, with anyone, at any time. And I want you to know that about me. Because I think we need to know this. And a lot of people do not live like it, act like it, believe it. But this is for you. This is for your family. Whatever your family's going through. For your career, your job. For your church, for this region, for America. And for the world. You see, I learned a long time ago, about 25 years ago, something I have never forgotten. God can do more in a moment than I can ever do in a lifetime. You see, God doesn't need me. I need God. I've experienced that power. I am continually seeking that power. In the church I pastored for almost 33 years, we experienced that power. And I want you to listen carefully to something that I want to say to you real quickly today. And it's this statement. Brokenness 
You'll hear Pastor Shane talk about brokenness a lot. Brokenness always precedes repentance. You'll never change and move away from sin and move to God unless you're broken. Because you and I have the same problem. We have a will problem. I mean, we're pretty proud of ourselves, aren't we? And we're pretty strong and quite independent at times. Now, your wife might not be like that. Maybe she is a cherished wife who doesn't have an independent will. Are your husband the same way? If, if they are, uh, I want to encourage you to stay with them, okay? But we all fight this battle. But listen to the stream. Brokenness precedes repentance. Repentance precedes revival. You, you can't have revival. You can't have the manifested presence of God come on your life if you're not willing to turn from the way you're living and turn to the God of heaven who can do more in a moment than you can ever do in a lifetime. And you're going to hear pastor from time to time talk about spiritual awakening. Well, let me tell you what happens. Brokenness precedes repentance. Repentance precedes revival. And revival precedes spiritual awakening. And awakening is when lost people to come to Jesus Christ as Lord. People who are far from God come to God. Awakening has happened in this nation and has literally altered this nation because God shows up in certain locales, certain geography, certain places, and He just sits down and saves those who are far from God. That's what you want to happen in this region. But it cannot happen until the church is revived. It cannot happen until we're willing to deal with our sin. And so this week, as I moved to more specific preparation for this day, and I prayed for this engagement since the first day pastor asked me to come uh, several, several weeks ago. But I feel deeply compelled to preach a message that the Lord really gave me this week. What must come to an end for revival to begin? I've heard prayers in this church, seen actions in this church, and there is a passion here for revival. But what must come to an end for revival to begin? If you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to look with me, please, to the book of Isaiah. And in a moment, I'm going to read to you from the book of Isaiah. It's a passage I'm sure every now and then your pastor might mention or quote. But I think it's an incredibly powerful, powerful passage. The Scripture says these words, beginning in verse 15 and reading only verse 15. 
Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, says. Now what that means is, this is what God says. He's about to tell you. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, question, who is God and what is God? This scripture talks about it. He identifies himself before he says what he says. Now, why should that surprise us that he would do that? Don't you do that? Hi, I am so-and-so. And then you say something. Well, God's got something to say here, brothers and sisters. And God's saying, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. And this is what God says. God is high. God is lofty. God is eternal. God is holy. God is changeless. He never changes. God is constant. Nothing else is constant. God is immovable. Nothing else in your life is immovable. God goes on and says, He dwells in a holy place. A holy place. What is that holy place? We believe that holy place, that perfect place, is heaven. Right? But then God gives to us good news. And listen to his news. Not only does he dwell in heaven, but he lives. Look what it says. It says that he, he, he dwells with the contrite. You know what that word contrite means? Crushed. Broken. Bruised. Lowly means he dwells with the troubled. He dwells with the humbled. Do you catch what we're saying here today about our God? You see here? But he can be with you. But we have to understand the importance we must be broken people, contrite people, humble people before the Lord. The miracle is this. Holy and great God who is away from us is also able to come to us and dwell in us. Wow, what a great thing. But why does God come like this? He tells us in Isaiah 57 why He does. He does it to revive the lowly. You know what the word revive is? It means 
to literally the word revival is the renewal of life. And it's the waking up spiritually. If you're here today and you've maybe been here before, your first time here today, you've heard the word revival used some by those from the worship team, Pastor Shane, others, and listen, revival is only for those who have been vibed. Who have been saved by the power of Jesus Christ. You remember the way your life was the day after you came to Jesus. You remember the flame in your heart. You remember the the, the freshness, the renewal, the experience of it. And then all of a sudden, after time, at times you can fade away. You never lose the Lord, but you haven't fanned the fire of the flame. Revival fans the fire of the flame. It wakes you up. And I don't want you to miss this today, and so listen carefully. He who is high and holy is distant to the proud, and he's distant to the sufficient. That's what pride is, is sufficiency. I got it covered, God. (laughs) I don't want to bother you. I got it covered. No, you don't have it covered. This same God is able to be the one who comes to the broken. And He comes to the humble. Oh, I tell you what, folks. What must come to an end before revival begins? First of all, Look at it with me. Pride must come to an end before revival begins. That's what the message of Isaiah 57 is in verse 15. Pride. It reminds me of the book of James over in chapter 4, verse 6. Look at it with me on the screen. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. Now, that means he doesn't get along with it. But he gives grace to the humble. To those who are broken and bruised and wounded. People that the world sometimes even scoffs at. Many times, even in the church, the church scoffs at them. Who are they? What are they? Wounded, bruised. Let me just remind everybody. Without Jesus, we're all wounded and bruised. Without Him, we're nothing. And many of us live lives that are in the process of being killed spiritually because of the bruising of the past. Pride holds on to the past. Humility embraces the future. Pride is when your life is mostly about you and your opinion and you. It's when you have an excessive obsession with yourself. 
Pride indicates you are sufficient. Reminds me, Pastor, of the book of Revelation in chapter 3 of the church at Laodicea, when Jesus said, I'm going to throw up you one day. You know what Laodicea church's problem was? They had a big old sign on their heart, no needs. I have no need of you. No need of you. Oh, listen, we need God. We must have God. Pride is about your status. Pride is also about your influence, your accomplishments in your life. And listen, here's the practical thing. Why in the world would you need God if you got yourself? Right? <laughs> well, pride must come to an end for revival to begin. Can I tell you a story? It was February of... 1995, before some of you were born. It was early in the morning, way before the sun came up. I was in my office having my time with God, and God spoke to me clearly. Ronnie, I want you to fast and pray for 40 days for revival in your life, for revival in your church, and revival in America. I said, now Lord, I will do what you want me to do, but I don't know how to do it that long. I'd started in my collegiate years fasting along with praying from time to time. But I'd never gone at that time more than 10 days of fasting. I was already pastoring a church and actively involved, and I had just gone to the church that I served for 33 years. But I sold the Lord. I said, I'll do it. But as any long-term fast, you have to have the right time to do it. There has to be a, a season when you know you can do that kind of commitment. And so I began on Easter weekend of 1995. And just before Memorial Day of 1995, the fast was over. I asked the Lord, now Lord, do I get to talk about this? And the Lord reminded me we wouldn't even know about fasting if Moses didn't talk about it. If Jesus had not made it public, somebody made it public. And in this experience, these were 40 days. Listen carefully. They changed my life. They changed my ministry. They changed my trajectory, my direction for the rest of my life. 
So the Lord gave me permission. So I wrote the church. Back then it was in print, by the way. Email was not very prominent at that moment. And I church, the church came. I told him, I said, listen, you know, I just want to share what God's been doing in my life. Most of them I lost so much weight that I thought I was sick. But they came. Worship center there held 3,500 people and the place was jam-packed on a summer Sunday in June the 4th, 1995. The worship was so powerful the moment the service started. God fell. By the time I got up to preach, it was a holy, holy moment. And I shared with the church about, about this experience and what God had done in my life. And, and, and I went through the story and I told them the story and I preached the text and told them more of the story. And then I told them, I said, listen, but there was a moment when the breakthrough happened. And the moment of the breakthrough happened on a, on a Saturday night, late, 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 early into Sunday morning. Now, the worst thing in the world a preacher needs is he can't sleep on Saturday night. You got to get an amen from the two preachers I know here. It just doesn't work well. Well, that was one of those nights. But I learned in that fast... When you can't sleep, maybe God's calling you to pray. So I got up out of bed. and It was just past midnight. Went to the living room floor and laid out before God with my Bible. Said, God, I don't know what's up, but would you please, please, please. And he said, oh, Ronnie, I've heard you talk about the problems in America. And I've heard you talk about the great needs of the church and how the church needs revival. But you remember I called you to this gathering as well. And I want to tell you this morning early what the greatest problem in your church is. It's you. And he took this verse that I... I just happened to open the Scripture to. In Isaiah 57, 15, and God did surgery on me. He cut me up. And oh, I repented deeply for my own personal pride, my ego. Success was already occurring in my life and my ministry, but the problem was I was proud of it. And if God was going to entrust with me more, then he had to what? Do just what Jesus said over in John 15. He's got to prune us. And I stood up on that Sunday morning and asked my church to forgive me. And God fell. 
God failed. That was the day revival came to our church, June the 4th, 1995. You see, I learned something, Pastor. When pride walks on the platform, God walks off. And that same thing happens in your marriage, in your parenting. God is never honored. Remember what God is? He's opposed to the proud. And He gives grace to the humble. But God also placed something in my heart that I felt so deeply would happen one day, and I still believe it will. And I prayed about it all these years, but God placed in my heart in that time that there was one day going to be a mighty spiritual revival that will come to America, that would transcend all denominational, generational, cultural, racial, and ethnic lines. And that's where God put it in my heart that he could do more in a moment than I could ever do in a lifetime. Even before the message was near completion, people were on their face before God, coming to the altar. For a Baptist church that had multiple situations going on, multiple worships, Sunday schools, all that, for a service to start at 9.30 and end after lunch, only God can do that in a Baptist church. And I, I told them that night when God, the day when God showed up and said, listen, if you'll just come back tonight, we're going to seek God. We're going to find out what God wants to do. They came back. I'll tell you how much God was on it. 70% of the Sunday morning crowd came back. We started at 6. We went to 10. Confession of sin in front of the whole church. Prayer, worship, the Word. It was again a move of the Spirit of God. But I'll tell you one of the great things, Shane, I've never forgotten. On that day, June the 4th, 1995, that was the day that that church got a new pastor and that pastor got a new church and nobody changed geography. God could do more in a moment than you can ever do in a lifetime. I could spend the next hour telling you stories about what's happened in my life since then, what's happened in our church since then, and what God has continued to do, everything that's gone on that is good goes back to that experience. And that ministry there, when I was pastor, I saw over 25,000 people come to Christ and be baptized. Preaching to thousands upon thousands upon thousands every week. Multiple campuses. Missions exploded across the world through that church. The financial capacity went from here, that was already good, 
to God-sized. And the point is this. Don't ever forget it. God can really do more in a moment than you could ever do in a lifetime, church. Don't ever forget it. Pride's got to come to an end before revival begins. What does God want to do in this church about pride? In your marriage, your career, the place where you work. What does he want to do? But I'll tell you what else has to come to an end. Quenching the Holy Spirit has to come to an end before revival begins. Quenching the Holy Spirit before revival begins. Oh, listen carefully to what the Scripture teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. Y'all remember hearing about that, right? You've heard pastor read that Scripture, I'm sure. You see, fire is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? It's an emblem of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a fire, and the Holy Spirit wants to burn. You want to know why there are times when your pastor seems to be burning? It's because he's been yearning, and the Holy Spirit has given him fresh oil and fresh anointing. But biblically, we must understand and we must never forget. And this is, this is basic, but you've got to get this before we can go. The Holy Spirit is God. Don't ever call Him something other than God. He is God. I am amazed at the way people speak of the Holy Spirit or they just choose not to speak of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for the word spirit is pneuma in the Greek language. It means breath and wind. And we saw all of that come to reality over there in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. As I said a moment ago, fire is an emblem of the Holy Spirit, and He is fire, and He is a flame. But He's not simply God. Holy Spirit is a person. Now, I want you to hear what I just said. The Holy Spirit is a person. Because from now to the moment we end this morning, that statement becomes extremely important. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a person. For example, how do you feel when someone ignores you? How do you feel when somebody tries to control you? How do you feel when someone wants withdraws from you? Or when you walk into a group of people talking and after you're there for a while, it's pretty apparent they really don't want you in the conversation? How does that make you feel? We all know how that makes us feel because we've all felt that before. Well, now you know how the Holy Spirit feels when you quench Him. When you just ignore Him. Quenching the Spirit, what does it mean? 
Quenching the Spirit means you are trying to put out the Spirit. Remember, He's a fire. It means when you are extinguishing the Spirit. It means when you are stifling the Spirit. It's like a, like a running back that is going on the, on the corner of the offensive line and a, and a D-back comes and tries to get him and he stiff-arms him. That's what we do to the Holy Spirit at times. We stifle him or we smother him. We want the fire to come, but let's let's try to control what he does. He's going to mess us up. He's God. How can he mess us up? God doesn't mess up. He takes those who are messed up and make them better. All of you living here know the whole element of the power of wind and fire. I mean, that's like preaching to the, to the choir, right? But listen, we know that safety calls us to care for fire when there's wind involved. But let me just make really clear to all of you that know all about that more than I would ever know about it. The same is not true for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you to smother it or control Him. He wants you to let Him be released. And when you try to control what He does, this never honors God. And it literally just shuts down what God is doing. And you know, because you've seen it here in this church, when God begins to move, the enemy, Satan himself, will show up in some crazy way, will he not? And all of a sudden, church people will say, well, that's what I've been telling you, things can get out of hand, get out of hand. Hey, what is the enemy's, he's always out of hand. But what is God? He can handle it. Stay in the Word and let the Holy Spirit guide you. You can't control what God does. Why do we try? So, when do we quench the Holy Spirit? I want you to really get this. First of all, when we do not rely on the Holy Spirit. When we simply do not rely on Him. That means today, if you came to church and you didn't ask the Lord to fill you with His Spirit before you came and you were walking with the Lord, you chose to come to church without relying on the Holy Spirit. Now, you may be relying on Him now. Praise God. That's the joy of worship. If we respond to Him, but we must not live life not relying on the Holy Spirit. And then also, we quench Him when we are attempting to legislate or restrict the Holy Spirit. And churches are really good about this. They think. But you know what? When we try to do that, what does God do? God does just what you do when you feel you walk up in a meeting and you're not supposed to be there. He just... He's like a dove. A dove is a temperamental bird. Noise. 
and that dove will fly away. The Holy Spirit is like that dove. Or it also occurs when we question, when we refuse to let the Holy Spirit have complete liberty in our lives and in our midst, we're quenching Him. So what must come to an end before revival begins? Pride must come to an end. Quenching the Holy Spirit must come to an end. And in closing today, in these final minutes we're together, grieving the Holy Spirit must come to an end before revival begins. Grieving the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, look with me to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Verse 30, verse 30 through verse number 32, Ephesians chapter number 4. The Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's pretty emphatic. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Compassion, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Every time I read that scripture, it puts me under conviction. What is grieving the Spirit? Grieving the Spirit is this. It is you making the Holy Spirit feel great sadness, uneasiness, and sorrow. What do you mean? Well, he's a person, remember? What did I tell you a moment ago? He's a person. And the Holy Spirit, he feels great sadness and uneasiness and sorrow from us. You see, grief and love have a relationship. Have you ever thought about that? The greater you love, the more you grieve when you lose. There are people here who have lost spouses or children or parents. And to the level of your grief, is only determined by the level of your love. God loves us. He gave His Son for us. He is pursuing you when you are running from Him. God never gives up on you. Aren't you glad? And listen carefully today. This God has chosen to live within you. And He becomes grieved when we do things that hurt ourselves. When we do things that hurt other people and when we do things to hurt His work here in this church, across America, or the world. So while God tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, He also instructs us of something very interesting here in this same verse. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a seal in your life. 
And you're sealed for the day of redemption, the day Christ comes again. Now, what does that mean? What is a seal? What does it mean that I am sealed? This is good news, so listen carefully. Simple illustration would be let's say you bought a house and you just sold your other home, but you had a lot of assets in your present presence until you bought your other house. In other words, you felt rich for about a day or two. And you found the house, you wanted to, to transfer the monies in that, from that financial institution to a title company that would complete the sale of the home. What they would make you do in that financial institution, most of them would, was that they would make you come and they would make you sign documents before they ever transferred the money to the title company. Why would they do that? To keep fraud from occurring. Stealing occurring. Taking away occurring. So you know what they'd do? Once you've signed the documents, they would take a seal. And they would seal the document. Meaning, this is good. Now, the funds can be transferred. A seal is a completed transaction that protects us from the loss of everything that God has promised to us to experience here on this earth and in heaven. And that Holy Spirit, He is living in you. He's your seal. The devil cannot take what God has given you. He does not have that authority. So here he is. He's told you not to grieve him. And he said, why would you ever grieve me? I've I've sealed you. Why would you do that to me? That's what he said. So when do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Boy, I'd love to go down on this, but I'm not going to. But I'm going to give you something here that I promise you. I want you to really grasp. Because in Ephesians 4.31, he goes through a list of what grieves the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you not only what this is, but what it means. Because sometimes we see a word and we don't know what it means. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we have bitterness in our lives. Let's start there. There are a lot of bitter people here today. Now, you may not admit it, but there are many of you that are bitter. Somebody's done you wrong, and you hadn't forgotten that. You know what bitterness is? It's when you are unforgiving. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Bitterness is when you are unforgiving. You don't understand. You're a preacher. Bitterness is when you are unforgiving. Hard. You ever met somebody hard? Just hard. You you could tell them they're ugly and they just look at you. Hard. They're not moved by anything. There's that old pride within them that swells up, and they just just they just dare you to look at them different. 
hard, cynical. You ever been around cynical people? They make fun of everything or they try to spin it. They're, they're sarcastic, caustic. All that might be cool in this world, but the dove flies away. Spirit says, no, I don't go there. I'm grieved. It's when you're hateful, cold, cold. A lot of cold people come to church. Interesting. I've been in some cold churches, but I'm not all just simply saying they ought to turn the thermostat up. Some cold people, harsh people. That's what bitterness is. You ever made anybody harsh? They can't be kind if they tried. And they have a perpetual animosity in their hearts towards someone. You bring it up, I mean, boy, they're like a rattlesnake going out. Bitterness. That's why not only does bitterness have an outside part, bitterness is so deep in your heart. It's the book of Hebrews that says, you better get the root of bitterness out of your heart or you will become destroyed and you will become like the very people you're angry at. Some of you, some of you are bitter. You can have this much of God. You can have all of God. But he's not going to dwell with power and greatness on an ongoing manner when you're bitter. It's the second word, and it's wrath. When you have a deep flowing anger resulting in rage, there are people here that lose their temper like big time. And then they release words infused with venom and poison. What it is. I mean, boy, they can lay it out there, man. They can make you feel about this big. And you just said, boy, it sure is a beautiful day outside. <laughs> Three is anger. Anger is when you're filled with a boiling revenge within you towards someone else. There are people here today with a lot of anger as well. And you're going to get them back and you're going to take your revenge. You're just waiting. Just waiting. This is this this right here, this is where America's at right there. They don't even know what the stinking they're mad about. There are people here today who don't know what you're mad about, but you got hurt. Now let me tell you what I've learned about hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. But God did never hurt you. God became all of that for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Clamor. That's number four. Clamor. Clamor is when you're shouting or you're yelling at someone. Ever seen that happen? In your home? There's a little clamor around. When you're shouting or yelling at someone or you're carrying on about something, and you just can't hold back in words and actions. You've been at a restaurant. Somebody didn't do the 
order right. No, that poor server there who just went to the kitchen to get the order. And she just delivered it and it didn't right. And you just going to make sure that not only her, that she knows she's nothing. You're going to make sure the manager, you're going to make sure everybody around you know you don't like it. It's great. But the dove flies away. Are you with me, church? Are are y'all getting this? Because if you're not, we just shut it down. And then he says the word slander. Now, I know this church would never have anybody in here that would ever do this, but I'm going to cover it. That's when you gossip about someone. Creator, spread rumors about them. Speak evil about them. You want to hurt them. You want to, you want to destroy them. You don't want to hold anything back about it. I promise you. Slander is real in this culture. Slander can ruin a career because of the loud, amplified voices of social media and so much else. God help us. Heard a story about a pastor one time who had a woman come forward. I want to lay my tongue on the altar. He smiled and he said, I'm not sure the altar is big enough. (laughs) But give it a shot. (laughs) It's interesting when you look at these five things We'll forget that next phrase if we're not careful. Look what it says in Ephesians. It says, but it what? Must be removed from you. Did say, when you get around to it, if you want to, as you grow. No, it must be removed from you, Paul says. That means to pick it up and carry it away. Let it go, dude. Make a Clean sweep of it in your heart. Get it out of your heart. It's destroying you. You want revival? You got to get rid of that stuff. You say, I don't know if I want it that much. But when you forget it and you let it go on and you release it and you remove it, then he said to do what? Be kind to one another. He gave you a better option. (laughs) God has a better idea. Can you believe that? Be kind to one another. That'd be interesting if that happened within all the families here today. Practicing love in action. That's what it means in words and deeds. Then he said, be compassionate. That means be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Move deeply within yourself to be caring and feeling the pain of others. Forgiving each other. Giving each other to release from offenses. That's what it means. To let them go. To do the same to others what God has done for you. He let your sin go. He paid the price for your sin. So you need to let the sins of others towards you go. You say, well, who's going to get back? 
God is the God of vengeance. He will deal with it. Nobody here is God. No one. No one. God showed me this in 1995, and I've never forgotten it, and it's more true today than I've ever, ever seen it. The wall of unforgiveness is the number one obstacle to revival in your life and the church today. A lot of unforgiveness. I honestly don't know how people live like that. And I really realize what it's like to be shot at, to be editorialized about, to be told off. I've been it all. I've been around the block a little bit. And I just want to tell you, I know what it's like, but I'm telling you, would you rather hold an offense or have the greatest anointing of God upon you? You have to decide. The anointing of the Lord will never be greater than your release of all that junk in your life. I met a man about three years ago, 87 years of age. His name is R.T. Kendall. R.T. has written over 80 books in his life. He pastored the great Westminster Chapel in his day and time for 25 years in London, England, right by Birmingham Palace. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, but you talk about a book that'll make you want to throw it and hit him. It's the book, Total Forgiveness. R.T. still preaches everywhere. I was telling pastor yesterday, he goes everywhere, all over America. Just went back to the, across the, uh, the Atlantic recently. You see, R.T. had an issue in his life that he had to forgive and didn't. And he couldn't get over it. He was so mad about it. And he had a friend come see him one day talking about something else and he poured his heart out to the friend and R.T. thought he would get sympathy. And the friend looked at him and said, R.T., you must totally forgive. And the Holy Spirit used that in his life to transform it. And here's this pastor who gets sudden release from all of the junk and feelings because he understood and practiced total forgiveness. That's what the book's about. Totally forgiving others. Totally forgiving yourself. And there's some of you that are mad at God because you think God did something to you. You need to totally forgive God. But I want to remind you, God doesn't make mistakes. God lets you in on what R.T. Kendall calls the family secret. You know what the family secret is? The family secret in the body of Christ is the secret. R.T. makes it really clear. He said, you know, he said, you can't, you can't know this secret unless you're in the family. So once you come in the family of God, here's your secret. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, 
and who are called according to his purpose. That's the family secret. So I ask you today, what is the price of revival? What will it cost you? What will it cost you? Pride must come to an end. We have to stop quenching the Holy Spirit. And we've got to stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Get rid of that stuff. The question is, will you be willing to pay the price? That's the other question. Sometimes you're in a store, you want that. Man, it's really good. Your lust button got turned on. You saw that car you wanted. You're trying to figure out, okay, I think I can mortgage my third child and maybe get that. <laughs> and the lust button's on for the, for the vehicle. But then finally, reason kicks in. And what do you do? I just walk away. Good move. Good move. That's the way people are with revival. Sometimes they see the cost of revival. There are people here today, you've already made the decision. Well, I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far. Okay, then you stay in your bondage. You stay limiting the activity of God in your life. But one day when you get to heaven, God is going to look at you and you will never know what he had for you and you chose not to go there. Could that be true for this church? For you, pastor? For me? What am I willing to live with? No, it's not about that. No. Either we want to go all in or we don't. And brokenness precedes repentance. And repentance precedes revival. And revival precedes 